0: Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. No, fascist USA. No,
1: fascist USA. It's no accident that the car ramming took place. It's domestic terror. Very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did.
0: I've never seen so much hatred
1: in the eyes of my fellow human beings in my life. We have overcome a lot in our democracy. We've overcome McCarthyism, we've overcome segregation, and we're gonna overcome this.
0: And I think we are having a huge debate right now around what's the difference between free speech and hate speech.
1: Welcome back to Overcoming Extremism. I'm Mike Signer. I was the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, during the Unite the Right rally in August 2017. Overcoming Extremism is a journey into the heart of American democracy as we explore how democratic institutions can overcome extremism in a challenging and frightening new era. We are talking to activists, elected officials, lawyers, journalists, faith leaders, and business leaders about how we as a nation can confront these new threats today. My guest today is one of the country's leading authorities on the history of the far right in America. Nicole Hemmer is assistant professor of presidential studies at the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and the author of the book, Messengers of the Right. Nikki is a regular commentator at Vox.com and the Washington Post. Nicole was on site in Charlottesville during August 12, 2017, and she later created a popular podcast about Charlottesville called A12. Nikki, thanks for being here with us.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: You know, I grew up in Arlington, Virginia, and the headquarters of the American Nazi Party was in what is now a coffee shop, which was a block from my elementary school, five blocks from where I grew up. But we kind of laughed at it. There was Mm -hmm. one older man who would kind of come in and out of the building, and it was more a symbol of how pathetic that movement was. Now you see something entirely different in terms of its consolidation. What explains that.
0: So I think that that reaction as to the American Nazi Party to the Ku Klux Klan over the past 20 or 30 years has been really common because you think of it as kind of a hangover from an era that is over. Here are people clinging to a past that they've already lost out on, right? Right. America has become fundamentally more diverse. It's become fundamentally more tolerant and accepting. It didn't seem like there was space in the political landscape for these folks. But they have spent the last 10 years or so really working to create that space, to modernize themselves, to repackage white nationalism and white supremacy in ways that would make it more appealing to a new generation. And that means a lot of organizing online, a lot of marching around in white polo shirts and khaki pants or a nice tweed blazer. And that because people thought about white power and white supremacy as something that was old and dusty and sepia-toned, hmm. they didn't recognize it when it was online and cleaned up.
1: I think one of the things that was most shocking to people is that while people are watching the this movement online, the violence of it is striking. We interviewed Vegas Tainold recently, a journalist who's been embedded with these groups and he talked about how dangerous they are, how physically violent, how criminal, and what is going on for people who are drawn to wanting the street fight to this, and then obviously to extremism and terrorism to be drawn into the orbit of this. Do you have thoughts, insights into this attraction of violent people?
0: Yeah, so there is a split within this new white power movement. And there were people like Richard Spencer who was working to clean up the image mm-hmm. of white supremacists, right? We're not violent. We're just, we're intellectuals. We're trying to protect our rights as white people. That kind of language right. and that kind of political positioning, especially with the rise of Donald Trump, this idea that we can mainstream ourselves if we don't seem like we're torch-wielding, violent white supremacist. The problem is, first of all, white supremacy is an inherently violent idea. It always is accompanied by violence because violence is what holds that power model together. But also, the people who were being attracted to these movements were largely young white men who were being radicalized and found a real masculine identity in the violence Associated with white supremacy. And you see that in groups like the Proud Boys. The
1: Proud Boys who are doing that ritual.
0: So they had this ritual in which they beat in their members that you had to go through this physical fighting. It's something that we see with with gangs all the time. Right. And that is about reinforcing both racial superiority, right? We're strong, we can win fights. And gender superiority. We're men right? And we know we're men because we throw and we take punches. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that this was violent. But there's a reason why at first in 2015, 16, 17, when media organizations were really starting to tune into the alt-right, that they didn't see that violence because they were too focused on the political mainstreaming.
1: What many people don't understand is that there's both a hard and a soft side to combating extremism. The soft side are things like educating kids against uh, intolerance and extremism and increasing values of pluralism. The hard side are things like prosecution and investigation, intelligence and new laws. From her historical perspective and from having seen the mayhem in Charlottesville firsthand, what did Nikki Hemmer think of the role of this hard side against modern-day extremism in America?
0: One of the things that we know from the history of white power prosecution and and Kathleen Ballou, who wrote a book called Bring the War Home, which is about white power activism in the U.S. from the 1970s to the 1990s, one of the things that she pointed out was that When there were these white supremacist conspiracies where you had a lot of actors working together but not always in visible ways... The state, the federal government, tried to prosecute them under conspiracy laws, and they kept losing those cases because they weren't doing a good enough job of demonstrating the conspiracy. Now, a domestic terrorism law can help with that. But what that resulted in was that the federal government decided that when it prosecuted white power terrorism, it would always approach it as an individual issue, that these were always going to be prosecuted as lone wolf actors and not as a conspiracy, because they believe that was the best way to get convictions. It also reinforces in the public mind that this isn't a terrorist organization or set of terrorist organizations. um, And it leads to misreporting on the dangers of these organizations and misprosecution of the people who are ultimately caught.
1: Um, The refusal of mainstream conservative politicians to strongly and convincingly disavow the militant rhetoric of the alt-right has mystified a lot of people. What is going on with this? Is it what it looks like, which is, it's a fairly cynical ploy to create a coalition where these folks are part of it and they're not, the door is not closed on them? Is it some deeper issue with not seeing how dangerous violent rhetoric is some collapse in our culture? Is it something else that's going on? What?
0: I mean, it's a combination of things. I don't think that most Republican office holders are sitting there thinking, man, I got to get those neo Nazis on my side. (laughs) What I think it is, is for a generation of Republican politicians, they have worked to gin up their base by saying the other side thinks that you're racist. The other side thinks that all of your political beliefs are all about the fact that you hate people who aren't like you. And so they actually are a little hesitant to call anything racist. They're also worried, I think, about their constituents and their base hearing them denounce the alt-right as racist And hearing that as a condemnation of conservatism more broadly, the alt-right, we can say, is just like, that's like a small group that's being used to tar conservatives. And if you keep attacking them, you're playing into the left's hands. And then I think for some people, I mean, like Steve King, white supremacist ideas still have a lot of political power in the United States, especially when harnessed to the issues of immigration, which is a central issue motivating the Republican base Republicans are treading very carefully because they don't want to lose their office. And if they they are seen as being too soft on immigration, which attacking someone like Steve King might be seen as, they're not going to do it. And it became in many ways a litmus test. Hmm. I mean, even today, if you criticize Donald Trump online for saying both sides, A, you'll get pushback from people who say, he didn't actually say that. And then they will also say that there were bad people on both sides. Didn't you see the Antifa? Like it becomes that response by Donald Trump has become a standard talking point.
1: So you're an expert in history and ideology and rhetoric and media. A lot of coverage in the last year about why is the federal government in the United States not doing as robust a job as they could against extremism slash terrorism, particularly in this white supremacist space, which nonpartisan organizations, the Anti-Defamation League, the Southern Poverty Law Center has found constitutes the preponderance of these violent acts. Do you think that it is what it's been argued that if there is a incorporation of anti-immigrant white nationalist thinking within this leading political party that that's why the FBI, why the fusion centers have taken the pressure off in terms of investigating these groups and infiltrating them and doing everything that they can to disrupt them as potential terrorists?
0: So I don't think that it is just a result of the Trump administration. I think federal law enforcement has long had a problem actually recognizing white supremacist extremism as extremism and that is part of living in a culture that is still by and large white supremacist right that is part of law enforcement seeing white people more as victims than as perpetrators of crimes and you see that in fact with the federal government's investigation in 2017 and 18 of so-called black identity extremists that's where the money and the attention was going even though that was not a real phenomenon but that said that in this era a very visible, rising white supremacist terrorism, that the federal government is not doing a better job at this. It is certainly not a priority for the Trump administration. I think there are a lot of concerns that, you know, what if the FBI and the investigators go a little too far and they end up like targeting conservative organizations. And that's a big fear among conservatives. So I think that there are lots of things tied up in it. But it does not help that there is currently an administration that not only doesn't see white supremacist terrorism as a problem, it doesn't see white nationalist ideology as a threat. It sees it as part of what they're doing.
1: So listen to what Nikki says when asked whether the alt-right shot themselves in the foot in Charlottesville, as many think.
0: I think the shot themselves in the foot narrative is actually really dangerous for a couple of reasons. One, what we've seen are groups like the traditional workers party that were at Charlottesville, they fall apart in the aftermath of Charlottesville. People like Richard Spencer start to lose some of their following people like Jason Kessler, basically collapses Mm -hmm. movement leaders. But that ideology and organization didn't go away. It just reorganized, right? It just gets new leaders. It just gets absorbed into the culture in different ways. What we know from the history of white power organizing is that there is, in fact, A distinct difference between events like the rally in Charlottesville, which is basically just a public relations event, like, look at us, pay attention to us, we're here, we're visible. What was surprising about Charlottesville was that big public PR event also was one of those acts of violent, deadly terrorism. That's actually pretty unusual. But even as that event was used to kind of propagandize among radicalized white people, especially online... There is a generally distinct leaderless resistance movement within white power that was still continuing to organize, still continuing to act violently. And we've seen that again and again in the past few years. Like we had the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history not very long right, ago. Right. And to, to say that white supremacist violence has died down would be an error.
1: Nikki sees some value in Antifa's confrontational and even violent approach to the right, or at least in understanding it.
0: I think that is how they perceived their actions. It's very much embedded within anti-fascist ideology that what we learned from the rise of fascism in the 1920s and the 1930s is that if you do not cut it off at its root, it will grow, it will become empowered, and it will be nearly impossible to stop. And so what you have to do is, by any means possible, stop fascism where you find it. And this actually leads to a really complicated set of conversations about activism, because the kind of activism that is lionized in the United States is nonviolent resistance. And there was a lot of that in Charlottesville, including by some anti fascist, but anti fascists also make room for violent resistance. They say that the only way to actually combat a violent ideology like fascism is with violence it's the only way you're going to stop it historically. That's what we know. So one of the things that anti-fascists have been trying to do is to gain acceptance for the idea that sometimes protests, sometimes resistance is violent. I don't think that they have built much of a base of support among the American people. I don't think that most Americans are like, yeah, we need to use violence to stop fascist and white supremacists and terrorism. They're fine with it in other venues. And that ultimately is what is going to limit the organizing strength of anti-fascists That said, I don't know how concerned they actually are about gaining that legitimacy because they really do see this as a fundamental part of their ideology.
1: Many people, not just anti-fascists, but ordinary people, politicians, have observed uh, similarities between this era and the 1930s, the last time that fascism took over countries.
0: It's important to recognize that there are a lot of similarities that white supremacy and fascism are constantly reinventing themselves for modern forms and modern language and modern arguments about why white supremacy is the correct political model for the United States. That said, I mean, this does feel different in a few different ways. Social media absolutely matters here because it allows for the circulation of ideas much more rapidly, much more anonymously and invisibly. So I think that that's really important. Although again, not for the first time in history, the protocols of the elders of Zion was anonymous, and it circulated across the globe. I think also, one of the interesting things about white nationalism today that makes it different from in the past, is that in The late 19th century, the KKK was an offshoot of the Democratic Party, right? It was kind of the militia arm of a major political party. And while some people might make that argument about the alt-right and violent white nationalists today, I don't think that that's the case. I think that it is still seen by many Americans as more shocking and more fringe than some of those groups were in earlier eras. I think we sometimes forget how accepted Violent white terrorism was in earlier eras of American history. But all of the features that we've talked about, the uh, organizing, the kind of terrorism style, the anonymity, and even the international, the international networks of violent white nationalism, that there's this idea of support and that your name will be remembered as a defender of the white race, that you were willing to give it all in order to see your ideology to its logical conclusion
1: chilling. You're a historian, you take a long lens on things you look throughout all of American history. Are you left optimistic or pessimistic about American democracy's prospects in light of what we've seen these last couple of years?
0: I can't say that I'm super optimistic in the short term. I think that democracy in the United States faces any number of challenges and Given the state of our current politics, especially at the federal level, where it's been very difficult for Congress to do much of anything, that's not good. (laughs) Our media landscape, not good. Like There are a lot of problems, including things like voter restriction, doubling down on the idea that you want lower and lower turnout. Those are all bad things that do not speak well for democracy. But American democracy has always existed with white supremacy and with violent white terrorism. And we are having serious conversations about how to reconcile that, how to create a truly tolerant democracy that rejects some of those premises that American democracy has never in practice actually rejected. And that I think is what in the long term gives me hope because those conversations are Mm. still happening and they're finding real political traction locally on the state level, but I think also we're seeing some of it break through on the federal level. The talk of reparations, something that has not been taken seriously since probably the 19th century, but not in any real way for at least 50 years, suggests that people are thinking hard about real ways to address inequity in this country and to make it a more small-D democratic country. And that's, at the end of the day, something that's very hopeful.
1: Well, Nicole... Hemmer, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on this journey into democracy's ability to deal with this threat that's been coming from within.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Nicole Hemmer is Assistant Professor of Presidential Studies at the Miller Center for Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, the author of Messengers of the Right, and the creator of the podcast A12. You've been listening to Overcoming Extremism. Overcoming Extremism's partners include the Anti Defamation League, the Fetzer Institute, the Charles Koch Institute, the Ford Foundation, Lowell and Eileen Aptman through the Soros Fund Charitable Foundation the John Pritzker Foundation, Comcast, NBC Universal, Democracy Fund, New America, Georgetown University's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, the Aspen Institute's Justice and Society Program, and Defending Democracy Together. Overcoming Extremism was produced in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our producer is Elliot Majerzik. The opening theme was created by Poddington Bear, and Elliot composed and produced the musical interludes and the closing music. I'm Mike Signer. Thanks for listening.